Hello and welcome to Dementia is Global. I'm Fanula Sweeney. According to the World Alzheimer Report in 2018, about 50 million people are living with dementia around the world. By 2050, that number is expected to triple to 152 million. The Global Brain Health Institute works to reduce the scale and impact of dementia and protect the world's ageing population from threats to brain health. Based at both University of California, San Francisco and Trinity College, Dublin, GBHI trains and connects the next generation of leaders in brain health through the Atlantic Fellows for Equity and Brain Health Programme. Dr. Bruce Miller is Deputy Co-Director at GBHI, University of California, San Francisco. I asked him what prompted his interest in Alzheimer's and why he believes empathy to be so important in dealing with the disease. When I decided to train in neurology, I was immediately interested in the degenerative diseases, Alzheimer's disease, frontotemporal dementia. So fairly early on in my neurology training, I decided I would train in Alzheimer's disease. It was unusual at that time. That was 1983. Had the term Alzheimer's been created then? Yes. Alzheimer's in the United States was considered a disorder of people under the age of 65, as Alzheimer had originally described. In 1975, a physician named Bob Katzman wrote an article that said Alzheimer's disease an epidemic. He basically equated most of dementia with what Alzheimer had described earlier. So then there was a real wave of interest in Alzheimer's disease that mostly began in the 1980s. What kind of environment was it in the 1980s to be working in this field? I found it really exciting. It was a very small field. I've been really fortunate to interact with many of the people who were leaders then, and more importantly, people who were going to become leaders and watch how they have changed and how their discoveries have made an impact on the field. Is it possible to describe just how much has been discovered about Alzheimer's since the 1980s? In 1980, we knew that there were proteins that accumulated in the brain called plaques and tangles. We didn't know what they were made up of. We learned that the tangle was made up of tau, that the amyloid protein made up the plaque. This was very important. And then people realized that you could have a genetic mutation in the amyloid protein gene that would lead to Alzheimer's disease. In the 1990s, we started to really classify Alzheimer's disease. It was the beginning of biomarkers where we could look at spinal fluid and have a high certainty that the disease that we were calling Alzheimer's in a person really was Alzheimer's disease. I think our diagnostic accuracy was incredibly low in the 80s and 90s and has steadily improved. Through technology? Some technology, but a lot by just observing what the disease is and what it isn't. Our precision has increased enormously, particularly in the last decade. One of the things that I really focus on is the diversity of the disease. What we may be calling Alzheimer's disease in one person may be very different at a biological and a clinical level than what we're calling Alzheimer's disease in another. And how important is it to make that distinction in terms of patient care? 
Incredibly important. We have had systematic failure in our therapies, a lot based, I think, on the false idea that Alzheimer's was one disease, it was caused by amyloid, and that if you just lowered amyloid, whether the person was 50 or 100, you would diminish the disorder, and that was really folly. I think we're regrouping and beginning to think about very homogeneous groups of people with Alzheimer's disease, targeting them with very specific therapies. From the clinical angle, if someone has a language problem as part of the Alzheimer's disease, then we better get them language and speech therapy. If another person has problems with what we call executive control, planning, organization, we want to think about rehabilitation. Also, as a family thinks about their loved one, organizing care around the deficits is really important, and they differ. How tailored can that therapeutic help be. I'm thinking of the healthcare system in America particularly, but also the wider situation where healthcare or a focus on dementia, Alzheimer's in particular, may not be present in certain countries. We certainly don't have a monopoly on great care, and there are many individuals across the United States who don't get tailored care. But I think what we've learned slowly is that this is a disease that goes on for a long time. And to write somebody off from the minute they start to show subtle memory problems is really a critical mistake. We lose the humanity of that loved one, and we don't give them the kind of therapeutic care that will really help them. One doctor I know in Ireland said that when he gives a diagnosis of Alzheimer's or dementia to a patient, that he says to them, you're still the same person walking out of this room as you were walking in. How important is the conveying of that diagnosis, the manner in which it's conveyed to how the person who's living with the disease deals with it? Often when I see someone, they've been through a lot. They've been through misdiagnoses. They've been blamed for their illness. Sometimes the caregiver is blamed for the illness. If they had done something differently, their loved one would be okay. Why didn't you get them this particular supplement? So one of the first things I do is almost always I validate that couple or that family. I begin by saying, you've dealt with a really tough problem and you've done a really brilliant job of dealing with that problem and you couldn't have done anything different and we're going to think with you about how you can do things in the next four to five years. Empathy. Empathy, critical. Can you describe how that has impacted someone who's just received a diagnosis? We're delivering bad news, but I think it's not as bad often as people think it is. Why? Because a lot of people think it's a death sentence. We have had people historically say, if you use the word Alzheimer's, my loved one will kill themselves or they will not be able to stand this. There are incredibly important things that happen during the degenerative process. Many bad, of course, but also many good. And it's really an opportunity for a family to reframe their relationships, begin to think about how they can get the most of that person and their unique specialness and the little bit of time that they have remaining. How prevalent do you think that view of empathy and the choice of reframing relationships within the family is in America? It varies enormously, and I think there's still a huge amount of skepticism in the medical community that there's anything worthwhile that they can do as a physician. It's horrifying, but it's true. So how do you change that message? 
It's education, and it isn't just physician education. One of the things I've really learned from GBHI is that we have to speak to the wider society, and it isn't always a physician who has the wisest or strongest voice. It's part of their responsibility, and we have a lot of projects in GBHI to work with primary care physicians to help them with an earlier diagnosis. They are overwhelmed by this very complicated process, and... A lot of them, for simple financial reasons, just don't want to get involved. So the message is, it's not the end of the world if you receive a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. Be aware of it. Have your family be involved in decision-making. And there's a lot of good that can come out in the absence of a cure. Absolutely. I stumbled on, in the course of my work with patients, a group who became visually creative in the setting of the degenerative disease. And it made me realize that each individual has their own story that is important to tell. In some cases, they become more empathic with the disease, not less. And sometimes they become wiser and able to put things in perspective. My wife's mother, who lived with a memory disorder for a long period of time, became incredibly valuable to those eight children in that family. They all called her every day, and her wisdom, despite the memory disorder, was what they craved. This was an incredible gift that she gave them. You mentioned the Global Brain Health Institute, of which you're co-director, of course. I'm wondering, as this institute trains leaders to go out into the world Mm. and promote dementia prevention, what exactly does leadership mean to you? I never thought about leadership until we started working in GBHI. One of the things I realized when these young, bright people from across the world started arriving in Dublin and in San Francisco is that we needed to do more than simply train people about the science of Alzheimer's or the health economics of Alzheimer's. We needed them to become a powerful force in whatever community they return to. So we have formally instituted leadership training. This is incredibly important for people from low socioeconomic populations or countries where a lot of times they've never been given the confidence to speak to politicians or even give speeches. So some of the training is simple. It's the mechanics. is how do you talk to somebody on the radio? How do you talk on a podcast? How do you give your own speech? What is your elevator talk? But the thing that I love the most about our leadership training is the value-based leadership that these young and older people are learning. And I would put myself in the older group. Victor Valcor and Virginia Sturm, I think, coined a phrase, a force, authenticity, fairness, openness, respect, courage, and empathy. These are all values that we want to teach our fellows. What do you look for in a prospective fellow in terms of leadership qualities? Even though I didn't realize quite formally before this selection process began that this was important to me, I look for those qualities. Is this person open? Is this person fair? Is this person empathic? Are they courageous? Are they willing to tackle hard problems? Or are they more comfortable living an easier lifestyle? These are things that I've always pondered and I think have been always part of my decision-making process. But the idea that you could train these features, well, of course you can. This is what our grandparents have done to us. This is what our parents have done. This is why we value elders in our community, because they teach us these values that we believe in. Do we value elders in our community, generally speaking, in the West? 
It's a mixed picture. There's a lot of emphasis on television, on youth, the physical attributes of youth. A lot of times we ignore these values that are so critical for a society. And sometimes we get leaders who don't embody any of these features. The Atlantic Fellows for Equity and Brain Health at GBHI come from many different backgrounds, many different countries, South America, North America, Europe, the Mediterranean, some Arab countries, Africa. What are the common denominators, again, in terms of your expectations of what can be achieved by these fellows as a result of studying at the Global Brain Health Institute? We think about different spheres of their lives that we hope to impact. If they're a physician, can we prove the quality of the care that they offer to a patient and their loved ones. It's more complicated when it's a journalist or a comedian or filmmaker. We want them to feel the empathy that goes on across our two programs, see the big vision of global brain health and protecting the brains of people being a very high value for a society. We like to think of them going home with the idea that anything that they want to accomplish, they can. And as the Global Brain Health Institute moves into, I think it's fourth, fifth year now? We've selected our fourth class. What are your expectations for what it can achieve in terms of dementia prevention around the world? We've got our eye on that 30% of preventable causes for dementia, getting rid of them everywhere dropping the prevalence by 30% while we wait for better medications. I think we can do that. Some of our fellows are already doing it. We'll leave it there. Dr. Bruce Miller, thank you very much thank indeed. You. That was Bruce Miller, Deputy Co-Director at the Global Brain Health Institute. For more information, you can visit www.gbhi.org. I'm Fanula Sweeney, and you've been listening to Dementia is Global.